Welcome, Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Luke Benke. Jack Sanker is unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it, uh, busy with actual legal work this week, so uh, it's just me. So for those of you who don't know, this is the show where we talk about the most interesting legal news of the past few weeks. First up, Jack Daniels scores a big win in the Supreme Court, at least for those interested in feverishly protecting their trademarks. And the U.S. Federal Trade Commission proposed a rule that would ban companies from requiring workers to sign non-compete provisions. Because this proposed rule would represent such a major change to business as usual, and because Jack and I want nothing but the best for our listeners, uh, we reached out to our partner Jeff Glass, a labor and employment expert here at Amundsen Davis. All that and more coming your way. Here's what you need to know. Quick follow-up on the Jack Daniels Bad Spaniels story from episode 34, and some of you might also recall that I talked about this during a guest appearance on the Newsworthy podcast back in May. The Supreme Court ruled on Thursday, June 8th, in favor of Jack Daniels, holding that the First Amendment did not protect a chew toy for dogs resembling a bottle of the famous whiskey from a lawsuit claiming trademark infringement. Justice Elena Kagan, writing for a unanimous court, wrote, quote, this case is about dog toys and whiskey, two items seldom appearing in the same sentence, close quote, suggesting that the court was at least somewhat amused by this dispute, but make no mistake, it was a very serious case. Trademark cases such as this one generally turn on whether the public is likely to be confused about a product source. In the Bad Spaniels case, a unanimous three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco said, as you might recall, the First Amendment required a more demanding test when the challenged product was expressing an idea or point of view. But Justice Kagan said, or wrote, I should say, there was no role for, quote, any threshold First Amendment filter, close quote, in this case. Rather, quote, the infringement claim here rises or falls on likelihood of confusion, close quote. And this really is the crux of the matter. Confusion about the source of a product or service. Jack Daniels, of course, argues that this chew toy uh, confuses consumers by taking advantage of Jack Daniels, quote, hard-earned goodwill, close quote. Now, To be fair, the toy is about the same size and shape as an ordinary bottle of Jack Daniels. The faux bottle follows the original in using a black label with a stylized white text and white border. And the toy has the product name Bad Spaniels in a similar font and arch to those that you see on the Jack Daniels bottle. But it still begs the question, at least for me, Do all parodies require permission from the owner of the parodied mark? Surely not, but where does this case leave us? Certainly this ruling puts manufacturers of parody products on notice. Now, one of our partners here at Amundsen Davis, Laura Greeby, she's a trademark guru, has a thought on this. She posted an alert on LinkedIn and wrote, quote, The bottom line in the Supreme Court's decision is to look at the overall use of a design when faced with a potential parody defense to infringement. A parody use, when also intended to act as a source identifier, is still a commercial use, and trademark principles 
will more likely apply than principles of fair speech, close quote. Now, this is a podcast, and we can't show you, our dear listeners, a side-by-side comparison of the toy and a genuine bottle of Jack Daniels, but I can tell you that there are a bunch of similarities, so I'm not surprised that Jack Daniels won. I am, however, a bit surprised that the decision was unanimous. One thing I do know is that trademark lawyers are going to be busy. Next up, according to Reuters, the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, proposed a rule that would ban companies from requiring workers to sign non-compete provisions, uh, as well as some training repayment agreements, uh, which companies use to keep workers from leaving for better jobs, the agency said. According to the FTC chair, Lena Khan, non-compete agreements, quote, block workers from freely switching jobs, depriving them of higher wages and better working conditions, and depriving businesses of a talent pool that they need to build and expand, close quote. The agency estimated that if the rule goes into effect, wages to U.S. workers would rise by $300 billion per year and an estimated 30 million Americans would have better career opportunities. Now, the rule, which could be months away from taking effect, would require companies with existing non-compete agreements to actually scrap them and inform current and past employees that they've been canceled. Interestingly, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is considering suing to stop the rule. To discuss this with us in a bit more detail, Jeff, how you doing? Good, good. How are you? I'm great, and uh, and thanks for uh, for joining us. You're no doubt familiar with this proposed rule, so uh, why don't you start by just telling us what a non-compete clause is, and maybe more importantly, what it isn't. Yeah, so and that that is really important. The, a non-compete clause it's usually in an employment contract, and it it provides that the employee after he or she terminates employment can't work in the industry or for a competitor. It's usually in a geographic territory, and it's usually for a certain amount of time. So it's a complete ban on competitive employment. Now, that's uh, a different thing than a non-solicitation clause. A non-solicitation clause keeps an employee from soliciting customers that they dealt with while they were with the former employer. And that's, that's more focused protection for the employer because it just protects the customer relationships. You can also have non-solicits for employees, which are kind of important these days because everybody has a hard time attracting and retaining employees. So this FTC rule, though, it would outlaw non-competes. That's the most, the, the broadest, most burdensome type of restriction, but it doesn't include non-solicitation clauses, which in my experience is uh, frequently the, the clause that really matters to uh, companies. Non-competes are, I, I think, one of those issues where you can go back and forth, you know, seemingly in perpetuity, right? Endlessly. There, there are great points on sort of both sides of this, uh, on the labor side of things, and then on the, you know, employer side of things. Um, what is your take on uh, the FTC's rule, and do you think uh, it matters? whether the company requiring the non-compete agreement is, you know, a small mom and pop shop versus say an Amazon. Probably what the FTC's, you know, worried about 
is like Jimmy John's was a famous example several years ago. They were having their drivers uh, subject to non-competes. You know, these are people that make 10 bucks an hour and it just seemed abusive, like it's going overboard. And then just some people have a kind of a gut level feeling of unfairness when it comes to non-competes that stop you from working in the industry where you know how to, where you can get employment, right? And you're banned from the entire industry, really? Even if I don't touch my former customers, even if I didn't take any information, I still can't work in the industry. That that strikes people as unfair. So that's kind of the balancing act, I guess. I think the argument might be better for those really big publicly traded companies uh, for doing away with non-compete agreements. I think it's different when you're talking about smaller, uh, you know, maybe mom and pop shops or even medium sized businesses, um, because, you know, that really is their their livelihood. Right. I mean, if they if they make the decision to invest in an employee, train him or her up and then he or she leaves and starts a competing business, you know, in the same footprint that mom and pop are in. Well, guess what? I mean, all you're doing is training someone to put you out of business. You know, is that good? You know, I can see how a small a smaller company might find it might think it's more important to be able to use a non-compete clause um, because they might have a small sales force and a few key customers. Whereas somebody like an Amazon or another huge employer, you know, unless it's a senior executive in a very sensitive position, like what, what do they care? You know, if somebody just gets a job in the industry, but um, you know, like I said, it's a key thing to remember the non-solicitation of customers and employees, that's not going to, as I read the FTC rule, that's not going to be regulated. And for my clients, at least, you know, protecting the customers and the information and the employees is what they're most, they're most concerned about, not banning somebody from working in the industry. What, the, what courts will look at, no matter what the document says, is they'll the employer has to show that they have a protectable interest that allows them to restrict somebody's employment because you're usually supposed to have, you know, freedom of employment, but you're also supposed to be held to your contracts, right? So when the court sees this type of contract, they're, they scrutinize it because it's a contract that limits, uh, you know, employment. And if you can show as the employer that you've got customer relationships that this employee developed because you were paying them to go out and do that, um, and that these are, you know, good customer relationships, long-term repeat businesses involved, a court will generally enforce that um, and restrict the employee. If it's reasonable, you know, it can't be for too long. But um, so the argument for these clauses is that the employer really does have important interest to protect. And then the other one is confidential information. You know, if, if you're worried that the employee knows stuff and they shouldn't be able to use it to solicit customers or work for another company. Those are protectable interests. So I guess those are the arguments for these clauses is that they, that employers have legitimate concerns. And as long as they don't go overboard, courts will enforce, you know, these clauses. Will this impact non-disclosure clauses? Here's, it, it says that if a non-disclosure clause is so broad that it would effectively ban somebody from working in the industry, then that's considered to be a non-compete. And that's interesting because uh, if you look at most companies' non-disclosure clauses, they really cover everything under the sun. 
because the companies think that if I just list all, you know, all financial information, all marketing information as protected, that's just going to cover all my bases. And with this new rule, just one thing that I'm keeping an eye on is, you know, it does say if it's if the non-competes, if the non-disclosure clause would have the effect of preventing somebody from working in the industry, a non-disclosure clause could be considered to be a non-compete clause. So those really broadly drafted non-disclosure provisions, which I see all the time, could be problematic if this rule takes effect. So that that's a good segue then to, to my last question for you. Are there things that employers can do to work with or around this rule? Or are you just saying that, you know, you're not so sure that this rule will be as um, maybe influential or impactful as a lot of people are making it out to be? Yeah, the main, in my experience, uh, for our clients, certainly, the non-compete seems to be going out of fashion precisely because you can protect yourself with a good non-solicitation clause, good non-disclosure provision. So that's that would be my advice to employers is, you know, do you really need a non-compete if, if they have to stay away from your customers and can't use your information? Usually the answer is no. So hopefully when this thing is, if this thing is passed and, and is upheld, this rule, um, our clients can still use non-solicitation and non-disclosure clauses to protect themselves. So as I read this, it's, you know, it's not a, a total disaster for employers, um, but we'll have maybe to maybe not as big of a boon to employees. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. It's, 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 it's a lot of States, Illinois, where, where I practice most of the time, uh, they, they put income thresholds uh, for non-compete agreements and non-solicitation clauses. So, you know, legislatures everywhere are looking at the, these things, but so far the stuff we need to have, have out there to protect the, the clients are, it's still available and enforceable unless you're in California or some really extreme jurisdiction. So Jeff, before we go, uh, if anyone needs to get in touch with you, uh, what can they do? So I'm a partner of Amundsen Davis. So you can find me at uh, AmundsenDavisLaw.com. The name's Jeff Glass, G-L-A-S-S. And uh, the email is jglass at AmundsenDavisLaw.com. I'd be happy to talk to anyone anytime about this stuff. Well, great. Well, Jeff, uh, thank you for your time and your, your expertise. Uh, we really appreciate it. Hey, thanks. No problem. Anytime. That's the show for today. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have thoughts on any of these stories, as always, uh, let us know what you think. Until next time.